0: turn again with me to 2 Corinthians 11. We find ourselves in the middle of a three-part series on 2 Corinthians 11 verses 16 to 29, which is perhaps the most famous of Paul's catalogs of his sufferings in ministry. And uh, I've entitled this passage, our little mini-series here, Answering the Fool. Uh, Borrowing the language of Proverbs 26 verses 4 and 5 which says, answer not a fool according to his folly lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes. And that seemingly contradictory counsel teaches us that discerning when, when to engage in unbelievers arguments and when to just walk away so as not to cast pearls before swine is a matter of wisdom. There are times when we must not answer the fool because in doing so we may stoop to his level and respond in foolishness ourselves. And yet there are other times when we must answer the fool because if we don't, he goes away thinking that there's no answer to his arguments and is only reinforced in his folly. Well, Paul has discerned that he was in a situation when he had to answer the fools according to their folly. And the fools we have long been acquainted with, they are the triumphalist false teachers who have invaded Corinth, boasting of their amazingly successful ministries and deriding the Apostle Paul for suffering so severely, even accusing him of being an imposter, not a real apostle because of all the opposition that he faces. If he were a genuine apostle, he'd be like them with their polished oratory and their flowery rhetoric and their large crowds and high speaking fees and their super spiritual heavenly visions and revelations. And the Corinthians have been dazzled by this outward flashiness, this foolish fleshly boasting of the false teachers. They're enamored with the glitz and glam of these self-exalting triumphalists. And so, Paul decides that if he's going to bring the Corinthians to their senses and win them back to faithfulness, he's going to have to boast too. Even though as a genuine servant of Christ, Paul recognizes that the sovereignty of God's grace makes it absolute folly to boast in himself, he discerns that now is the time to answer a fool according to his folly. Since they're infatuated with the foolish, he's going to engage in some foolish boasting. And we spent our first message explaining the meaning of this passage along five points and follow along in the text as I just recap those briefly. First, we saw that there was a serrated appeal in verse 16. It's an appeal because he says, again, I say, let no one think me foolish. Please don't think I'm actually a fool just because I start to boast like one. I'm just trying to make a point. But it's a serrated appeal because he follows that up with, But if you do, receive me even as foolish so that I also may boast a little. Even if you do mistake me for a fool, that's fine. Just be sure to receive me like you receive all the other fools, like these false apostles. Second, there was an important clarification that he gives in verse 17. He says, what I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. He clarifies that this boasting is not Christ-like, it's not going to meet with the Lord's approval. You say, well then, Paul, why are you doing it? And And that brings us to the third point, which was Paul's desperate rationale, which is in verses 18 and 19. He says, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also, for you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. Paul hates to boast, but he feels forced to lower himself to acting like the foolish false apostles so he can win back the Corinthians to the truth. Fourth, he presents a striking contrast between himself and the false apostles in verses 20 and 21. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. He contrasts the tyrannical, domineering lordship of the false apostles which the Corinthians foolishly submitted to with the servant-hearted weakness that characterized his own ministry. And then finally we have Paul's foolish boast. He says in verse 21, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. And because the false apostles were, were Judaizers, they boasted in the purity of their Jewish heritage and so Paul responds first by countering that he is just as much of a Jew as they are. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. In every area that had to do with Jewish privilege, Paul was on a level with these false teachers. But they also and perhaps primarily boasted in their successes in ministry as so-called servants of Christ and so Paul says in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. And so you'd think that what would follow after I more so, I'm a better servant of Christ than you, is a celebration of His victories and His accomplishments and His successes. But instead, he speaks about his sufferings and his difficulties. Let's read the rest of the passage again, verses 23 to 29. Paul says, In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in colds and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern?" And so we spent our first message explaining the meaning of that passage. And then last week I began drawing out some of of the many implications this passage has for our lives and I noted that this text teaches us no fewer than six lessons concerning the life lived in obedient service to Christ and we got to three of those last time. And I'll I'll recap those just briefly here. First, the first lesson taught us about the Christian's view of boasting. We saw three things in particular about that boasting. One, boasting is totally incongruous for the follower of Jesus. Paul says in verse 17, what I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would. And literally that says, I am not speaking according to the Lord, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. This is out of accord with the Lord Jesus. The beginning and middle and end of the gospel by which we are saved, the incarnation of Christ, the perfect life of Christ, and the substitutionary death of Christ, all of that is a wholesale denial of self-exaltation. It's the embrace for Christ of self-abnegation. And so it would be totally incongruous for us whose salvation has been won by self-denial which salvation we receive only as a gift of God's grace, it would be so incongruous for us to go around boasting in ourselves. And therefore, in the second place, boasting should make the genuine servant of Christ intensely uncomfortable. You see this intense discomfort throughout this entire section. He refers to boasting as foolishness in verses 16, 17, and 21. He refers to it as fleshliness in verse 18, as insanity in verse 23. We mentioned that in chapter 12, verses 2 to 5, he invents a person to boast about because he finds boasting in himself so distasteful. He says, I know a guy who went to heaven, but I got the thorn, so you figure that out. Why are you going to get a thorn because he went to heaven? No, it's actually Paul. But he's so disgusted with boasting in his own visions and revelations that he makes a person up and says, I'll boast about him. The commentators describe Paul's attitude to boasting in this passage with the words obvious embarrassment, thoroughly distasteful, nothing could be more uncongenial, utterly detestable, sends him into spiritual agony, filling him with a feeling of self-contempt. This is how the genuine servant of Christ feels about boasting in himself. And we asked last week if this was our attitude toward boasting or whether we really enjoy the accolades and the attention. And then in the third place we learn from this text that if the faithful minister of the gospel ever does boast, it's not in his spiritual victories and exploits and accomplishments but only in his sufferings and shame and defeats and weaknesses. And that's because we looked down to chapter 12 verse 9 and found that Christ's power is perfected in weakness. It is against the black backdrop of human weakness that the brilliant glory of the power of God shines the more brightly. It is when the minister is bankrupt of his own strength, destitute of his own glory, and can do nothing but cry out to God for help that God shows up and works through the frail and feeble efforts of His His servant to make His word effectual in the lives of His people. And when that happens, there is no doubt who the glory belongs to. It's then that your weaknesses showcase the glory of Christ's power. And so Paul says in Galatians 6.14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Such is the Christian's view of boasting. And then a second lesson we learned from that passage last week was about the Christian's view of ministry, namely that biblical ministry is a ministry of service, not of tyrannical lordship. And we saw that in the contrast between Paul and the false apostles outlined in verses 20 and 21. And we've gone over that a couple times, so I'm not going to repeat it, but I will just mention Luke twenty-two, twenty-five, 25, where Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. You see, that heavy-handed dominating spirit That's what marks the rulers of this world system. That's the Gentiles, right? But in the kingdom of God, true greatness displays itself in the humility of servanthood. The truly loving shepherd of Christ's sheep renounces all forms of despotism, of domineering, and of dictatorial power. And so I exhorted you on two fronts. One... Beware of any professing Christian leader who doesn't seem to understand that genuine Christian ministers exist to serve the people of God, to spend and be spent for your souls. They humble themselves so that you are exalted. They build you up. They labor alongside you for your joy and progress in the faith. Beware of those who don't understand that. But two, I exhorted you to take care that as you carry out your ministry in the body of Christ, each one of us being called to ministry to the body of Christ, that you stifle any hint of that dominating spirit that might be cropping up in your heart. All of us, friends, are ministers, not masters. We are servants, not lords. Such is the Christian's view of ministry. And then our third lesson was concerning the Christian's view of correction, and that was that the sensitive, caring, Christ-like minister, the one who understands that biblical ministry is a ministry of service and not lordship, the one who eschews heavy-handed, domineering, the heavy-handed, domineering spirit of tyrants, that minister will sometimes employ vigorous, And even harsh language to correct the sheep from particularly dangerous error. Again, the sensitive, caring, Christ-like minister will sometimes employ vigorous and even harsh language to correct the sheep from particularly dangerous error. And that was seen how in how Paul openly mocks the Corinthians for their foolishness. He says, Receive me like you receive fools, verse 16. You, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly, verse 19. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison, verse 21. Paul, who understands that ministry is servanthood and not lordship, does not hesitate to employ severe mockery, the most biting irony to bring needed correction to straying sheep. And we said last week that these two pastoral voices are entirely consistent with one another. The same love and compassion for the sheep that issues in tender encouragements and and expressions of affection is that same love and compassion that brings forth the severest correction when the sheep are in the midst of wolves or when the sheep are tangled in a web of sin and can't break free. Desperate times call for desperate measures and sometimes serrated irony can function like a spiritual defibrillation, right? Like a controlled shock that jolts the heart back to health and so I exhorted you to examine yourselves and to ask yourselves whether you'd wisely receive this kind of correction from your pastors, from your shepherds, from your leaders in spite of the sting or whether you would look your Bible study shepherds, your elders, your pastors, look them in the face and as it were look Paul in the face and accuse them of being unloving and harsh and so forfeit the benefit of that correction. And that brings us current to this morning where we'll examine three more lessons that this text has for us. In addition to learning that the Christian's view of uh, learning about the Christian's view of boasting, of ministry, and correction, we also learn number 4, something of the Christian's view of tolerance. The Christian's view of tolerance. Paul uses the word tolerate twice in verses 19 and 20. He says, "'For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly.'" "'For you, tolerate it. If anyone enslaves you and devours you, takes advantage,' and so on.'" He said something similar toward the beginning of of the chapter in chapter 11, verse 4. He said, "'If one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully.'" It's a cognate form of the same root word, you bear this beautifully, you tolerate the foolish gladly. The Corinthians have a tolerance problem. They bear with false teaching. They tolerate the intolerable. Now in the last 10 to 15 years, the worldview of postmodernism has come to dominate the collective intellectual consciousness of Western society. And perhaps the pinnacle virtue of postmodernism is what they call tolerance. Now, contemporary postmodern tolerance is not what English-speaking peoples have always meant by the word tolerance, always understood it to mean. In the past, a person was judged to be tolerant if, though he held his views strongly, believed them to be absolute truth, and believed that just as strongly that all other mutually exclusive views were absolutely wrong, nevertheless. He insisted that others had the right to disagree with his deeply held convictions. He believed that he believed in his convictions unwaveringly and even believed that everybody else should believe what he believed, but he did not demand agreement. He did not try to coerce consensus. He tolerated the existence of differing opinions even on what he believed to be non-negotiable truth. The old view of tolerance was captured well by that oft-quoted aphorism, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. But the postmodern version of tolerance is of a totally different sort. To today's culture, tolerance is no longer the idea that wrong views, though wrong, nevertheless have the right to exist and to be heard in public discourse. Now you're only tolerant if you believe that no position or opinion is any more or less true, right or valid than any other opinion. So D.A. Carson explains the shift this way. He says, the new tolerance suggests that actually accepting another's position means believing that position to be true or at least as true as your own. We move from allowing the free expression of contrary opinions to the acceptance of all opinions. We leap from permitting the articulation of beliefs and claims with which we do not agree to asserting that all beliefs and claims are equally valid. And with that revisionist definition of tolerance comes also a a revisionist definition of intolerance, which is a big deal because there are few worse charges to be accused of today than being intolerant. Now that tolerance doesn't mean, any, mean uh, tolerating the existence of opposing views, but just asserting that all views are equally valid, intolerance is disagreeing with the notion that no one position is more true, valid, or trustworthy than another. So if you insist that someone is unambiguously and unequivocally wrong about something, you are intolerant. You're an uncharitable, arrogant bully. Perhaps you're even a bigot. And do you recognize what the the central philosophical underpinning of that worldview is? If no view is more right than any other view, it's relativism. It is the rejection of absolute truth itself. If no one claim is more right or more true than any other, there's no such thing as absolute truth at all. And the postmodernists don't dispute this. As far back as 1995, the United Nations released what is called the Declaration on Principles of Tolerance and in Article 1 on the Meaning of Tolerance, it it asserts that tolerance, quote, involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism. And one can't help observe that that assertion sounds awfully dogmatic and absolute. And that, of course, is the failure of all forms of relativism. Relativism is hopelessly inconsistent because the claim that there is no absolute truth is itself an absolute statement. If someone comes up to you and says, there is no such thing as absolute truth, all you must do is look them in the eye and say, is that absolutely true? (laughs) Because if it is, then, then there's absolute truth, if it isn't, then why are you talking to me? right? It's rationally baseless. It immediately collapses under its own weight. And so Carson observes, under the new aegis of this tolerance, no absolutism is permitted except for the absolute prohibition of absolutism. Tolerance rules except that there must be no tolerance for those who disagree with this peculiar definition of tolerance. And so ironically... But inevitably, for all systems based on relativism, what is now called tolerance is actually what the world has always known as intolerance. And because the church inexorably and inevitably imitates and apes the foolish fashions of the world, always ostensibly as a misguided means of attracting the world, contemporary evangelicalism has imbibed these very redefinitions and philosophical presuppositions. For so many professing Christians who are scared to death to offend the sensibilities of the postmodern culture, the worst thing in the world is to be called intolerant. And so what has happened? They have subtly, maybe even in some cases unintelligibly, abandoned their commitment to the absolute truth of Scripture in favor of being more tolerant of diversity of opinions. Men rise up in the church, sometimes women rise up in the church, begin teaching doctrine that does not accord with the pattern of sound words entrusted to us in Scripture. And some rise up against that error and criticize it for not aligning with biblical truth, and yet others push back against that. And they say, hey, let's not be so rigid and so dogmatic, okay? Uh, These people are aiming to ground what they're teaching in Scripture They just have a different interpretation of Scripture than you do. Who's to say that your interpretation is better than their interpretation? After all, the text isn't all that clear anyway, is it? We should hear them out. We should give them a platform. We ought to be tolerant of a diversity of views. And that is exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. The false apostles showed up when Paul was miles away and they began sowing doubt about the integrity of his character and the truth of the gospel he preached. And when the Corinthians first discerned that that was going on, they should have risen up and rejected these men for the wolves that they were. But what happened? They flashed their letters of commendation. They touted their Jewish heritage and their connection to the church in Jerusalem. They bragged on their eloquence and their strong leadership. They boasted in their high-priced honorariums and their large fan base and the bevy of their ministerial successes. And the Corinthians were taken in. And so they tolerated subtle deviations from the truth. And when those subtle deviations became more obvious deviations from the truth, they tolerated those as well. And when the toleration of little compromise after little compromise led to their enslavement, he says in verse 20, led to their being devoured, led to their being taken advantage of and even physically assaulted by these fools who preach another Jesus, who who preach a different spirit and a different gospel, they tolerated it. They bore it beautifully. Friends, this text teaches us that there is a limit to biblical tolerance. There is a limit to biblical tolerance. There are certain things that we simply must not tolerate in the church. You say, Mike, wasn't Jesus the supreme example of tolerance? I mean, He refused no one. He welcomed everyone to Himself. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation 2 verse 19... Jesus commends the church of Thyatira, He commends them for their deeds, for their love, for their faith, their service and their perseverance. When the uh, the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, they needed to repent and do the deeds that she, she did at first, it says in verses 4 and 5 of Revelation 2. But Jesus says that Thyatira's deeds of late are greater than at first. Verse 19, but though Thyatira was loving, their love could be undiscerning. It could be blindly affirming. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality. Jesus is intolerant of Thyatira's tolerance of error and immorality, and He promises severe judgment for it. Verse 22, "'Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and the hearts.'" The Jesus of Revelation 2 is not the Jesus of postmodernism. The real Jesus is decidedly intolerant of false doctrine and moral relativism. And for those churches who compromise the Word of God in an effort to be more tolerant and more affirming than Jesus is on whatever issue... They will find themselves under the judgment of one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze and whose robe is dipped in blood and who comes to strike down the nations with the sword of his mouth." Martin Luther said it well when he wrote, I am not permitted to let my love be so merciful as to tolerate and endure false doctrine. When faith and doctrine are concerned and endangered neither love nor patience are in order. When these are concerned, neither toleration nor mercy are in order, but only anger, dispute, and destruction. To be sure, only with the word of God as our weapon. Listen, dear people, truth is intolerant of error. Truth is intolerant of error, and we are not permitted to tolerate the preaching of error in the name of truth. Rather, we are, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Not by force, not by coercion, we understand that in a fallen world, error must exist and we don't seek, as some do, to outlaw from the public square every viewpoint but our own. But... Behind this pulpit, in Christ's church, there is one rule, there is one sovereign standard to the exclusion of all others, and that is Scripture alone. And we must never so adopt the world's definition or notion of tolerance that we tolerate anything but the voice of our Good Shepherd as spoken in His Word. There's a fifth lesson that we glean from this passage, and that is number five, the Christian's view of fake Christians, the Christian's view of fake Christians. We see this in verse 26, where Paul lists the many dangers he's faced. Turn back to 2 Corinthians 11, if you're still in Revelation 2. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven 26, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. The phrase false brethren translates a single Greek compound word, pseudadelphoi. The word adelphos is the word for brother. We recognize that in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? And the word pseudos means false, phony, counterfeit. We, We have that like in pseudoscience. Uh, you know, astrology is a pseudoscience or whatever it is, you know. Pseudepigrapha describes a, a collection of, you know, putatively sacred writings but are actually uh, fake, they're not from the apostles, they're not from uh, authoritative teachers, they're the pseudepigrapha, the, the, the false writings. So Paul uses this word pseudodelphoi to speak of false brothers. Only other one place, only one other place in his writings, Galatians two four. There he says in Galatians 2, 4, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. And so just as in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul uses the phrase false brethren there in Galatians to speak of Judaizers who professed faith in Christ but who sought to add works as an instrumental means of justification. And this teaches us then that there are people, friends, who will call themselves Christians, who will profess to be our brothers and sisters but who are not genuine Christians, who are false brethren, who are just as dead in their sins as any Muslim, as any Buddhist, as any Hindu or any atheist. There is such a thing as fake Christians. And when you think about all the doctrine that the Judaizers got right, monotheism, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Jesus being fully God and fully man, truly God, truly man. They believed in penal substitutionary atonement. They believed in the the death and resurrection of Christ. They believe in repentance and faith in Christ for salvation. You, You have to realize, when you realize all of that stuff that they could get right, that you can say an awful lot right and still be phony You can have a lot of the right doctrine, confess a lot of the right biblical beliefs and be off. All you have to do is teach something about Jesus or about the gospel that is so fundamentally unlike the true Jesus and the true gospel that it makes him into a different Jesus and the gospel into another gospel. And teaching that we are justified by faith plus by Christ plus is to corrupt the gospel with works and to make grace no longer grace. So also, the fleshly triumphalism that teaches that Christianity consists in boasting in the outward successes one after another and that suffering is only a sign of divine displeasure, that makes God into nothing more than a glorified genie and it prostitutes the gospel into a means of self-worship of man-centered self-idolatry. There is such a thing as fake Christians, friends. And what I want you to notice here is that these fake Christians are particularly damaging to ministry and are particularly heartbreaking to genuine servants of Christ. Why do I say that? I want you to notice the literary structure of this list of dangers. We've got a pair of dangers that are associated with the frequent journeys that he says he's been on, right? Dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. Then we've got a pair that covers the spectrum of all peoples dangers from my countrymen, the Jews, and dangers from the Gentiles. Then there's a triad that covers the spectrum of all places dangers in the city, in the wilderness, and on the sea. And then at the end of the list, Standing all alone as it were, as the climax of the dangers in ministry, is this phrase dangers from false brethren. He singles this danger out. Everyone else has a pair or a triad, everyone's a pair or a triad. Why does he single this one out? I argue because it's the most personally hurtful and strategically damaging of all of those. Paul could deal with external threats to his own life well enough. Getting swept away by rivers, getting mugged by bandits, getting whipped and beaten and stoned by unbelievers, that was bad enough but it took a special measure of fortitude to endure the pain of betrayal from those who claimed to be His brothers in Christ but who were false brethren. When someone who seems to be laboring right alongside you in ministry all of a sudden pulls the rug out from under you and and aims to sabotage your ministry, it is an especially bitter sting. And it so insidiously corrupts and undermines ministry because those who you depend on to bear the weight of ministry are rotten on the inside. And just when you need to lean on them the most, they crumble into pieces And they destroy the work of the ministry. It was only several months ago that a man who served for 23 years as a professor at TMU's IBEX program in Israel denied the deity of Christ and so proved himself to be a false brother. And what happened? Not only was the work in Israel threatened, I mean, obviously we've addressed that need, that's good, but the work was threatened. It took a lot of manpower and and hours and energy but those who had students, who had been through that program and had benefited so much from this man's teaching and influence over the years, had begun posting on social media about how bewildered they were that this could happen. If a man who they regarded as such a godly example, so much more godly than they were, if he could prove to be a phony, were they phony as well? Was the truth that he taught them not the truth? See, all manner of mischief is brought upon the ministry of the truth by false brethren. And so what is the church of Christ called to do? Romans sixteen seventeen. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Titus 3.10 and 11, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Matthew eighteen seventeen. if he refuses to listen even to the church, if there's been private rebuke, if there's been plural rebuke, if there's been public rebuke and he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. See, the elders of a church are especially tasked to be on guard for and to protect all the flock from the savage wolves that Paul promises will arise from within the church, Acts 20 verses 29 and 30. Fake Christians exist and they are particularly hurtful to the genuine servant of Christ and they are particularly damaging to the work of genuine ministry and therefore the shepherds of the flock are to make it their business to discover these fake Christians through the work of church discipline, through the ordinary having relationships among you in the body, And there being the fortitude to address sin with one another and confront and to bring sin to the attention and say, brother, I think you're amiss here. Sister, don't go down that road. And if there's no repentance, there's another brought along. And if there's no repentance, the church has gotten involved. And if there's no repentance, even from the whole church, we're to remove them from the fellowship of the redeemed. Paul gave this instruction to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, he said, I wrote to you, not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat eat with such a one. Verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is the counsel, the burden laid upon the shoulders of the elders of the church and the faithful members of a church. This is why we do this, not because we're mean and intolerant and bigoted, but because we are commanded by the text of Scripture to remove the wicked man, the unrepentant man, from among ourselves. Certainly, we're all sinful. Certainly, any one of us on any day can be uh, found to be sinful and unworthy of the fellowship of the redeemed. That's not the standard. The standard is if there is no repentance. If there is factiousness when confronted a first and second time, there's no repentance, right? So this is what we're talking about. An unrepentant, sinning person must be removed. And so, and why? Again, because false brethren are particularly hurtful to the genuine servant of Christ and particularly damaging to the work of genuine ministry. That brings us then to a sixth lesson. We've learned much about the Christian's view of boasting, of ministry, of correction, of tolerance and of fake Christians. The sixth lesson this this text has to teach us is finally the Christian's view of the burdens of ministry, the Christian's view of the burdens of ministry. And we see that in verses 28 and 29, he says, apart from such external things, There is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? You see deeper and more intense and more burdensome than any of the avalanche of sufferings outlined in verses 23 to 27 was the daily pressure of concern for the spiritual health and stability of all the churches. Beatings, shipwreck, cold and exposure were no match for the pain that assails the heart of the genuine shepherd for the welfare of his flock. Paul speaks of this daily pressure of concern and the word concern there is actually literally translated anxiety. It's the same word, in fact, that Paul uses in Philippians 4, 6 when he commands the Philippians to be anxious for nothing. Now the anxiety Paul is speaking about in Philippians 4, 6 certainly has a more negative connotation to it, that is sinful anxiety, but here we learn that there is an appropriate anxiety that the genuine minister feels for the health of the people of God. The genuine servant of Christ is not indifferent or disinterested or detached from the spiritual well-being of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He is deeply invested in the strength and vitality of their faith, in the progress of their sanctification. In verse 29, he uses another fascinating word. He says, who is led into sin without my intense concern? An intense concern translates the single word paraomai. It literally means to burn. The New King James translates it, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. And that captures the sense well, whether because of an evil example or because of the seductive deception of those who disguise themselves as angels of light or because of the corrosive nature of false doctrine or even just because the allure of sin has deceived a believer's heart over and against the glory of Christ. If any believer stumbles in sin, Paul burns. His heart is set aflame. Both with compassionate concern and, and, and vicarious shame for that child of God who has stumbled and with fiery indignation against the messengers of Satan who have caused them to stumble. And I want to quote an extended portion from Philip Hughes here who so insightfully comments on this verse. He says, "...so sensitive is he to the fortunes of those who through his ministry have become his spiritual children." So conscious is he of the responsibility that has been laid upon him for them as Christ's apostle, that he cannot detach himself from their lot. It is the compassion of the parent for the children he's begotten. It is the compassion of the shepherd for his frail sheep. Their weakness is felt as his weakness. Their frailty, so easily suffering offense, is his frailty also. The stumbling of one of them causes him to burn with shame as though it were his own, his own stumbling and to burn with indignation against the seducer who has made one of Christ's little ones to stumble. And then he applies it to us. And so it should be with every faithful pastor of Christ's flock. And not just every pastor, but every single one of us, because every single one of us has been called to the ministry of the, to the body of Christ. And so we could say, so it should be with every faithful servant of Christ's flock he should lovingly identify himself with those who have been committed to his care. Namely, in our case, the fellow members of our local church. These are the ones who have been committed to our care. Showing himself deeply anxious for their spiritual well-being, compassionate with them in their frailties and temptations, and resisting and resenting everyone who seeks to entice them away from the purity of their devotion to Christ. Grace Life, are you such faithful servants of Christ's flock does your heart beat alongside Paul's heart do you long for the sanctification of the church do you burn with indignation at those who cause Christ's precious little ones to stumble do you know anything of the anguish of childbirth that he speaks about in Galatians 4:19 Because you long to see Christ fully formed in your fellow believers. Do you know anything of the the daily pressure, that intense concern that feels the pain of spiritual weakness in the body of Christ as your own weakness? Do you grieve over the heartbreaking news of a believer stumbling into sin? Or do you hear of it and just scoff and, oh, I can't believe there's another one. How is he going to be so unfaithful and what's wrong with him? another one bites the dust. No, do you grieve over that? And if you grieve, do you therefore labor among your brothers and sisters now, doing everything that you can to strengthen their hands, to root their joy so deeply in Christ, so that when the temptations to stumble come, that nothing of the sort takes place, because they're strengthened, they're equipped, they're rooted, solid in Scripture and in the joy of Jesus. In Colossians 2.1, Paul says, I, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And then he says, And for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, Paul struggled mightily in prayer for Christians he'd never even met. And struggled for what? Colossians 2 2, until you attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Dear people, ask yourself, do you know anything of that great struggle on the behalf of your brothers and sisters? Do you devote your time to investing in the bride of Christ, to training her, to equipping her to strengthening her to battle temptation, to put off sin and to press on in practical righteousness. The genuine servant of Christ is no professional. He is not a dispassionate CEO managing an organization of people from his well-decorated air-conditioned office. He's a pastor. He is a shepherd. Even those of you not called to full-time ministry are charged with caring for the flock and that ministry to which you have been called is not faithfully discharged with half-hearted indifferent detachment. It's carried out with the most intense zeal, with the deepest compassion, with the loving heart of a brother or sister, with a tender heart that feels the burden of that zeal And the compassion of that tenderness more acutely than the most severe external sufferings. But notice one more thing about these burdens of ministry. The good shepherd, the faithful servant, the caring servant is sympathetic to the weaknesses of God's people. Verse 28, who is weak without my being weak? It wasn't just that Paul burned with indignation when someone fell into sin. His heart was weighed down with the burdens of any spiritual weakness in all the churches. No one in any church endured any spiritual weakness that Paul did not feel as his very own weakness and that is ultimately because he himself was weak. He knows what it is to suffer with physical infirmity. He speaks of a bodily illness in Galatians 4.13. He knew what it was to be discouraged. As Acts 18 records that the trials he faced on his first visit to Corinth required the Lord Jesus to come and visit him in a vision and encourage him to persevere. Don't fear, keep speaking. I've got many people in this city. Paul knew what it was to battle fear. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul could so readily empathize with the believers and feel their weakness as his own weakness and so be a good pastor because he himself was acquainted with weakness. And such is true of all genuine servants of Christ's church. The best servants are not, as the false apostles claimed, those who were successful and polished and put together and super spiritual. The best servants, those who can most faithfully and compassionately minister to those beset with weakness, are those who are experimentally acquainted with weaknesses themselves. Think about it. When you're battling with sin, when you're battling with discouragement, the last person you want to come and help you is a triumphalist, a prosperity preacher, someone who boasts only in their strength and and despises weakness as the judgment of God. No, you want someone who has walked through the valley you are walking through. You want someone who has felt the sting of affliction. You want someone who there has therefore felt the consolation of God's sovereign comfort so that they can comfort you in any affliction with the comfort they have been comforted by God. Which means, friends, that your weaknesses can never disqualify you from serving Christ and His people. Your strength maybe. But your weakness only qualifies you to receive comfort and strength from God's sovereign hand and then to communicate that comfort that you received to others who are in need of it. Your weakness is not an obstacle to faithful ministry. It is a prerequisite for faithful ministry because it is only in your weakness and our weakness together that Christ's divine power is perfected. And of course, Christ Himself is the premier example of that truth for us. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5 as we close. Hebrews chapter 5 starting in verse 1, the writer says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He that is the high priest taken among men, He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since He Himself also is beset with weakness. Not because He Himself also is fraught with strength, leaps and bounds beyond the ordinary hoi polloi Christians with super spiritual visions and revelations and outward successes but since he himself also is beset with weakness the high priest's weakness qualified him to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided and so it was in the case of Jesus our high priest look down to verse seven in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death and he was heard because of his piety although he was a son He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus prayed with crying and tears. The eternal Son of God learned obedience from his sufferings. He was made perfect as a genuine human being. And it was because of this continuity of nature with us, because He was genuinely human and faithfully obeyed His Father as a man, that He became the source of our eternal salvation, our great High Priest. Now look back to Hebrews 4.15 where the author says, "'For we do not have a High Priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Because he took the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, assuming to himself a true and full human nature with all the frailty and weakness that that entailed, aside from sin. Because of his assumed weakness, he can sympathize with our native weakness. He can deal gently with us, the ignorant and the misguided. He can be the source of our eternal salvation. And friend, if you sit here this morning outside of Christ, clinging to your sins, void of true repentance, destitute of genuine saving faith in Him, you have no great high priest to sympathize with your weaknesses. You have no great high priest to bear your weaknesses and bear your sins to pay for them by the sacrificial offering of Himself you're lost. You can expect nothing but to die in your sins, to come under the judgment of God, and to drink down the dregs of His outpoured wrath for all eternity in hell. But, dear sinner, none of those things has to be Because this great high priest has interceded for the transgressors. He has borne the sins of his people on his cross. He has accomplished righteousness and defeated death by rising from the grave. And this great, merciful high priest offers himself to you this very day. He calls you to repentance from sin and to faith in him and in his gospel. He calls you to confess your sins, to own your guilt, to repudiate any and every good deed you might trust in to pay for your own sins. And he calls you to look on him and look upon his good deeds and to see in him a perfectly sufficient savior, to see in his cross, all the payment for sin that you could ever need in his life, all the righteousness you could ever hope for. And he calls you to trust in him alone for the forgi- for that forgiveness and for that righteousness. Dear friend, if, if you're here this morning and are outside of Christ, repent and believe in Christ. Lay hold of the merits of your great high priest who not only avails for you in the courtroom of God, but who deals gently with you in your weakness because he himself was also beset with weakness. And to my brothers and sisters who are weak, Don't despise your weakness. Recognize that in the pattern of your Savior, your weakness is the occasion to minister to others who are weak and to put on display the power of Christ. Don't learn what ministry is like from these proto-prosperity preachers in 2 Corinthians 11. Don't learn what ministry is like from the contemporary prosperity preachers on TVN, learn it from Paul, learn it from Jesus, minister in weakness so as to minister in Christ's strength. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you accomplish that in our midst? Would you make us an army of ministers, a church full of servants who care for the health and well-being of your flock. Teach us to despise the fleshly comforts of those who make this world their home. And give us that mentality of the pilgrims, of the sojourners that we are, who here have no lasting city, and so therefore minister in weakness and frailty all our lives so that we can put the power of Christ on display. Display your power, Lord Jesus. Get what you are worthy of in your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.